Well, good evening, and we are in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, and uh, it's uh, dealing with the three images of the church. And uh, that's where we have come to as we finish uh, this section of at least chapter 2. This is what it's been building up to, toward a consideration of the church. And that's the major theme of Ephesians, at least one of the major themes. Uh, Paul is going to put before us the very glories and the privileges and advantages of being a member of the church, the body of Christ, that uh, Christ is the head. Chapter 2 presents uh, God's plan from uh, man's perspective, showing not only how we've been made alive in Christ, as the chapter first started, showing our depravity, but then what uh, God has done but how we've also been brought into the very fellowship of God's redeemed people. And that's the very point of this last uh, section of this chapter, these last few verses, 19 through 22. What Paul has been emphasizing is uh, two things. Uh, The first is the greatness of the change that must take place in us before we can become a Christian. It's the new birth. There must be a new creation. And, of course, the other is the privilege of our position as being members of this body of Christ. Uh, The Ephesians were that, and now they've become this. They were at this point at one time before Christ, and then afterwards we see the changes. We come to the very privilege now of that position. What a wonderful thing this is. Uh, We see uh, these three images, these three pictures that are in this passage this evening. And if only we could realize this tremendous high calling that we have, all of our problems would just fall off. They'd be totally unworthy of even any kind of consideration if we could just rise to the heights of our calling. What a calling we have. And Ephesians uh, definitely puts that forth. Now, as we um, looked at the section before this that... uh, finished at verse 18, which is where we were at last week, talking about our access right to the Father. We have access to Him. He starts in verse 19 with those famous two words, now therefore. Uh, Here's the conclusion of the statements that were made in the section from verse 14 through 18. And it's going to take from them and draw these uh, inferences. Now the verse 19 through 22 reads like this. Now therefore... You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Three pictures. One of them is the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Uh, Second image is the family of God. And then third image is the temple, the temple of God. And we are all parts of each one of those pictures. Now, in the first section, which is uh, dealing with the the kingdom, you're not going to see the word kingdom in there. It's not used, but the idea of it is when he talks about us being um, no longer strangers and foreigners with fellow citizens. We are fellow citizens. We are in the political realm of citizenry. The first one that we look at, we're no longer strangers or we're no longer aliens. The word is uh, xenos. 
And uh, that's the ones who find themselves in a place which is not their own country. Uh, they live in a place, but they really don't have citizenship. They uh, are like living on a passport. They have to renew it periodically. They're always sojourners, always aliens. They don't belong to that country. So they're a different quality of a different nature. So that's one of the words as you look at um, saints or, um, excuse me, strangers and foreigners. And between those two words, there's not a lot of difference. If there is a distinction, strangers and aliens, strangers um, describes a person from another country. Uh, alien or foreigners lives in a land as a resident alien. Uh, foreigner is um, something that where people would be among people who are not their own kind. The word is par oikos. Uh, means to make one's home alongside another. So you, you could be living alongside somebody but still be a foreigner to that land. You're not a citizen there either. To have a home alongside someone else, to settle in a place but not being a citizen. It's um, a picture of a city-state, a picture of a country, being citizens in there. At one time we were not citizens, but now we are citizens. We once were not citizens. We were strangers to the kingdom. Take, for instance, the Ephesians, especially, let's say, maybe a, a slave. They were Gentiles. They were uh, foreigners to the kingdom that God had set forth in the uh, at least uh, the Old Testament realm. When you think of a kingdom, they now have become fellow citizens in this great kingdom that God has set forth, even though they would be considered to be lowly slaves even, Gentiles, they are now citizens, natives of that same city or state or country. They're not homeless or second-class citizens. Now, that's what Paul is doing. He's comparing the church to a city-state, a country, the church is a great state. It's an empire. It's a it's a kingdom. And that's why we uh, draw from this illustration of the kingdom. He now treats us as he would treat his own son, as we have become members or citizens of this. If you can think of Hebrews 2, and of course this is going to kind of run into the thought of a household, which is going to be the second picture, but it shows you how we have become close to the Father, to the Son. Hebrews 2.11 says, For both He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren, in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. That's how close we have been made to the Son. And um, there we see that Christ is considered to be our brother. If we were to move on to the next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 6, it talks of a household here. This is the uh, illustration we will be looking to that. But in verse 6 it says, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, 
if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing and the hope firm to the end. So we've been made close. We are accepted in uh, this household, but um, in this kingdom we uh, are trying to think of here. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, where he talks about we being part of the family God, uh, joint heirs of children than heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. So that is how we can consider to be um, citizens, fellow citizens. If you are with other people in a country that you are a citizen of, there are certain people that you can feel comfortable with. Are you quite at ease among God's people? Are you at home in God's house? Do you understand what is being talked about? Do you understand the language? If you're in a country, a country has a particular language. Do you understand that? Uh, we have a language in Christianity that um, we would understand. It's like, do you have a passport or do you have a birth certificate? Of course, so if you're born into a country, you're automatically a citizen. You have a birth certificate. That means you're born there and you're not traveling around on a passport being a stranger. Now, there's a past tense to this thought of the kingdom. If you think back in the Old Testament, you have a theocracy in which God is the absolute king, ruler, the sovereign, head of that early Jewish state. That was the perfect setup. Of course, the people eventually wanted a king like the other countries. God gave them a king, and uh, they were highly taxed. And uh, other things uh, went down with the kings being oppressive. We know some of the stories that they did. But God actually had a rule over Israel, and he actually did even when there were kings. He was sovereign. But um, God had, had a kingdom, and they were a holy nation. They were to be a kingdom of priests. So that's the past tense. They were considered to be fellow citizens in that kingdom. Now there's a present tense of a kingdom. John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, preached a message. It was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right in your midst. It's, it's coming up. It's here now. So when we think of that, we know that there was a kingdom that um, God had. There's a kingdom even right now in the sense of where we are living in. In Luke 17:21, Nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is among you or in your midst. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Uh, of course, that's Christ. Um, it It would be uh, something that God could would bring His people into. It was coming on at that time. Paul describes the kingdom of God as uh, not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, the kingdom is where the King resides in our own lives, in our own hearts, and we have peace and joy. Holy Spirit. And we can see that that has happened to us. We were delivered out of that darkness. If you will remember in Colossians 1, 
it talks about transferal that happened to us. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So we were in darkness and He transferred us into the kingdom of the Son. And that is our position now. We live in this kingdom and we are subject to a king in this kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. Uh, It's much better than any kind of kingdom that can be set up by man. So we actually are living in a colony that comes from heaven while we live here on earth. So we're dual citizens, but our true citizenship is, is in heaven. It's a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. So when you look at a city, a city-state, a country, the image there stresses order, it stresses protection, it stresses identity. So there was a past tense of the kingdom looking at Israel. There's a present tense in the kingdom that we are in now. When we became Christians, we became a part of the kingdom of God. There also is the sense of the future kingdom, the kingdom that we look for when Christ comes back. As it says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, the great prayer that Jesus gave an outline of what prayer was to be among the disciples. And um, there he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, There the prayer is that the kingdom will be coming to us. So there is one picture that uh, we get out of our Ephesians Chapter 2, verse 18, dealing with the the kingdom. We're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. And also we're members of the household of God. And so this is now where we shift over to the realm of the family and uh, intimacy here, where... It's one thing to be part of a kingdom where you are citizens with other people. You are uh, part of that country. But now, not only that, we are close in a family situation. Family in the church. We all have a key to the front door. Uh, We can get in. We are in there. We are welcome at all times. We don't have to have permission to enter. It's like... um, when you um, give a key to uh, somebody in the family and uh, they come in late at night, and you might be in bed, but they're able to come on in, no problem. They, they walk into the house. They're always welcome. And uh, that's part of the household. Well, in the idea of the household here, we get the word oikaos which can refer to a whole establishment, a family establishment. And uh, back at the time that this was written, this word could mean the family members plus the servants, uh, the slaves. And, And so it can be anybody that was part of that house. And what this is stressing here, though, is that we're part of a natural family of God. 
where the ties are of like uh, blood. We're born into this. We are in in the family of God. And you can't help but think of, uh, of course, John 3 and uh, Nicodemus talking about being born again. And uh, there, Jesus brings out a truth that had to be very difficult for one like Nicodemus to understand. But Jesus says here, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. When he was talking about being born of the Spirit. Uh, You have to be born again. Born of the Spirit. Born from above. And that's that's the idea that we're born into it. In 1 Peter 1.23 says that we're born by the very Word of God. Uh, That is... um, how we uh, enter into faith. The Word of God is brought to us along with the Spirit of God. And of course, the, the idea of the household is that each one is accountable to each other. We hold other men or members accountable in that household. We're to make each one holy. There are privileges in this household. Privileges like a network of brothers and sisters. When you think of a network, it you think uh, today of uh, on the internet, you have Facebook and uh, friends uh, of, on Facebook get connected with each other. They have a whole network of people that they have uh, at least an acquaintance with over the, the internet. Christians have a protection uh, of prayers that are in the church. When you have people praying for you, that is quite the comfort. We pray for others, intercede for others. People are interceding for us. What a great uh, privilege that is to know that that is happening. And sometimes we can almost feel the prayers that have been offered for us, not even knowing that somebody's praying at that time. Uh, also, the privileges of being in that is uh, communion and baptism. We're also placed in God's plan. We have a place in that that a particular situation that where God puts us and where He wants to bring us to, the ultimate, I think, is the very access to God as Father. And we looked at that last week in verse 18, having access to this Father in this household. That's an incredible thought. So, we have two great pictures before us within... Actually, one verse in verse 19. We have the kingdom and we have the family. There's a third one, uh, which is found in verse 20, 21, and 22. And it's the awesome picture of the temple. God dwells in the midst of the people. Now, whenever the tabernacle was going up in the Old Testament... God had instructions given to Moses so that people would build a tabernacle and so that God would be in their midst. There was a physical element where they would realize that God was with them. Of course, he was to be in the Holy of Holies. Uh, That tabernacle was a place where they could come to and worship, recognizing that he's dwelling there. Cloud by day, fire by night, but that temple or that tabernacle was um, 
a precursor to what would later be built as a place that would no longer be a tent, but would be a building, a temple, something that was um, a little more longer-lasting, as the temple was um, something that would be there as a structure. The tabernacle was a tent, and it was moved around for years and years until the temple was built. Uh, Jesus uh, had done a sermon on the mount. And when he finished that sermon, it was about the two builders. One built his house on the rock, the other one built his house on the sand. Of course, we know when the storms, the rains come, the one who built his house on the sand, uh, was uh, his house was destroyed. The one who built on the rock still had his house there. So, Jesus brings out the significance of the durability of a foundation and, and, a, and a structure that's upon it. It's not enough just to comment on the sermon and admire it, but he brings forth these two builders and uh, they're at extreme opposite ends. Jesus uh, had even mentioned about a temple to um, the Jewish religious leaders. And he got in trouble when he said that I can tear down the temple and in three days build it into a new temple. Of course, he's talking about his uh, own body as he would be killed and then resurrect on the third day. And he was a part of that temple. The very strength, the very durability of a building rests upon the foundation. Jesus is that foundation. He is that very rock that uh, the church is built upon. Of course, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation too, but it's because they're teaching who Christ is. The focus is on Christ. Christ being the cornerstone, but the apostles and prophets just continued on with what Jesus had been teaching. So we, we look in verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. If we were to look in 1 Corinthians 3.11, we would see that there is a building, there is a foundation. Each one of us is to be building uh, or adding to that. It says in verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. Where is building? According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, as Paul writes, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. Paul uh, was part of that foundation in that he taught the very uh, teachings of Christ as uh, the other apostles did also. If we went back to Matthew 16, we would see that Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, who do they say that I am? And of course, Peter comes up uh, with the answer that really was given by the Father, 
as it says uh, in verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, uh, after G- uh, Peter had said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus answered, uh, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And here's our verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So the rock really, uh, although Peter is a rock, but on the very foundation of what Christ had set forth as the church, uh, ultimately we know it's Christ, it's the very teaching of who Christ is, what He's about. That is the foundation. Everything focuses and centers on Christ Himself. Uh, There, Jesus is speaking uh, to Peter and showing him that is what it's uh, on. In uh, John 14, this is the night before Christ will be crucified and he's giving his last instructions to the apostles and he is telling them that the Holy Spirit will be given to them and he'll teach them all the things that they will need to know to write down. In uh, verse 26, chapter 14, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit would come to mind whenever they would be writing these truths down. They would be able to put it down the way that God has in mind. That was John 14. In John 15, we get more of this, um, more of a reminder. That's in John 15. Verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So he would give them the Spirit of truth. The Father would send him and he would testify of Christ. So that is, the, uh, of course, the very inspiration and what they would be using to um, use as the very teaching of Christ, the very foundation, as the apostles continued on, the apostles, prophets being uh, the foundation. In chapter 16, verse 13 through 15, it says, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come, He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So they were assured by Jesus that the Holy Spirit would come. He would come to them and they would be able to recall the things that Jesus did, write down the things that needed to be written. The New Testament was given through the apostles, the basis of um, tr- the truth was laid down, the sound doctrine, all based upon the very person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we are in Ephesians, 
chapter 2, if you go over to chapter 3, and found in verse 5, is this statement, dealing with the apostles and prophets again, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, speaking of the mystery, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So there, again, this is Paul writing in Ephesians, and he's saying the same thing that Jesus had said in the 14th, 15th, 16th chapter of John of the promise of the Holy Spirit that uh, would come to the uh, apostles. And then they would be able to reveal these truths, even the great mystery of the church. In chapter 4, verse 11 of Ephesians, it says, And he himself, Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets. So there's apostles, prophets. The very foundation that our Ephesians 2 is talking about, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. So, the foundation is very important. The apostles and prophets is what God had in mind. So this temple has that foundation and it's a building that's going up. Um, this building has stones. The stones are living stones. Living stones built upon this uh, substructure, the foundation. And this superstructure all are determined by Christ, by Him being the cornerstone. A cornerstone would line up two sides and then hold those two sides together. That's what um, was used, for instance, in the temple. There was a cornerstone there. It was the size of a bus. Incredible. A huge stone that was a cornerstone that supported uh, these those two walls holding up together. What um, Paul would be referring to here as he talks about a chief cornerstone would be maybe uh, thinking of in Isaiah, a great Old Testament passage about a cornerstone, Ephesians 28. And we see a cornerstone and living stones uh, later on in the New Testament but in Isaiah 28, verse 16, we get this famous verse here that is used as a quote very often. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation. Just what we've been talking about. A tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. This was later to be used in the New Testament, Peter picking up on this. But uh, the stone, the foundation is Christ himself. He is the precious one. He is the sure foundation. In Psalm 118, we get this same familiar thought. seems to reoccur as we look throughout Scripture. 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected that would be the Messiah, which the leaders of the Jewish religion rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. So 
So Christ was the cornerstone. They rejected that cornerstone. And then we look in the New Testament and we see how this lines up with that in Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Haven't you read the Scriptures? Don't you know that the builders will reject this stone, the chief cornerstone? It's amazing that the religious elite would have missed that. We were back in Isaiah in chapter 28. If we can go to Isaiah chapter 8, putting together this idea of the cornerstone. Isaiah chapter 8, and it's in uh, verse 14. And this is a messianic prophecy. And this is about that stone. And there were going to be people who would trip over that stone. It says, He will be as a sanctuary, this Messiah, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, that's an incredible prophecy there that is found in Isaiah. Messianic prophecy, and he's going to be a snare to them. Many would stumble. They'll fall and be broken over him. Uh, they will be in a snare and be taken. Well, we know that Peter definitely picked up on this analogy. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we see direct quotes. And he's speaking about the, the church as being a, a living stones. And not only that, but um, speaking of Christ as a living stone who was chosen by God and He was precious. And then he compares us also as living stones, picking up verse 5, are being built up a spiritual house. Here is our temple analogy that Paul refers to. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Rather than that physical building now, where the people would worship God, instead of worshiping there, we find out that we are a part of this building um, and the worship is now no longer in one building, but it's all throughout the church and it's built upon Christ. So therefore, what Peter does now say is this, therefore it is also contained in the Scripture something that we had uh, read earlier in uh, Isaiah. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's right out of Psalm 118, which we read earlier. 
and also Matthew 21, which Jesus had quoted from. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And there's our Isaiah 8.14. So our Isaiah passages, our Psalm passages, uh, Peter picks up on this, shows that uh, as he's talking about stones, which Peter, uh, that's what his name means too, stone, uh, but he recognizes that we're, we're all stones. And we are living stones being built up together in this great church. What an analogy. It's a strange thing. Living stones. An organic entity. And we are built together to become a building. And the Greek word is uh, sunar malageo, which means a joint to pick out, which equals to join closely together. This would be used among the people in architecture. It would be a metaphor, uh, architecturally. In our First Peter 2.5, he uses the living stones being built up a spiritual house. And Paul is saying something that would be um, very similar to that. It's a great illustration. When you think of a, a building, you think that you already have it planned out and how it's going to be built, where it's going to be built, what uh, is going to go uh, in that as far as materials are concerned. When we think of this great building that God is building, this church, this great temple, it is just truly awesome. James Montgomery Boyce had some really interesting thoughts on this, I think, that are very very helpful. First of all, each of those stones are chosen and shaped for the very position that they are being put into. They were chosen before the foundation of the world. He knew exactly which stones that he wanted as he put in there. That is spine-chilling to think of he was thinking of us, each individual, as he was going to build this church. And we are all placed in the position in relationship to that chief cornerstone, that Messiah, Jesus Christ. We are in position in relationship to him. Another thing is that the stones that are being used are um, different. They come from different places. There are different shapes and different sizes that are put in there. All perfectly made and yet different. And they will be linked to one another. Each stone that goes into that building is sized up, chosen out, uh, put in there, and they're linked together. And each one then contributes to this great building. They all have uh, a part to play. Each stone in that building is very important. And if we turn to 2 Corinthians 6, 16, he says that we are temples of the living God. He says, One agreement has a temple of God with idols, for you are the temple of the living God, as God has said... And he uh, gives a quote here. 
I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is out of Exodus. And there he's talking about uh, the temple, the temple representing dwelling with them, where the tabernacle was the same thing. I'll be their God, they shall be my people. People could identify that he was amongst them. What a building. And here we are together, each contributing to that. And another thing about this, it's a, it's a long construction plan. It's taking many thousands of years for this building to go up. And it includes the, includes the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints. They all are going up, building, being built up into this one great big plan that God has. And one more very important thought, I think it's very fascinating, is that it's done mysteriously. And the reason we say mysteriously, if you recall, if you go back to the time of Solomon's temple, going back to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, whenever they built the temple, they made the stones at the quarry. They made those and then they brought them up to be put into the temple so that there wouldn't be any uh, hammering and getting it to that size and the shape that was needed to be. It was all done perfectly beforehand. And so there was a quietness done about it. And that's the thought here as we talk about a mystery. It says in verse uh, chapter 6, verse 7 of First Kings, And the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone, finished at the quarry, so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. So this was a holy place, and God was going to have those stones already made. And uh, so it goes as this temple is being made today. It's done in a mysterious way as it's being put together. It's done in a quiet way. The Holy Spirit uh, comes and does His work. The wind blows as it will. And that's what God is doing as He's constructing His perfect church. We uh, finish up our... uh, Ephesians passage here tonight. In the last uh, verse that is dealing with the dwelling, as uh, we have just talked about in verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God and the Spirit, a dwelling place. Uh, this temple, this tabernacle, God is there. We're being built together into that, just as um, people in the past have been put into it, we are put into it. This word for dwelling there means permanent home. Kat oikaterion, permanent. And um, not something that will be put up for a little while and then taken back down. We have the very Holy Spirit taking up residence 
in this holy place, the dwelling of place of God in the Spirit. So, when we think about this, we see that we are a city of God. What a picture that is. That's the very kingdom of God. We are also in the family of God, where we have intimate relationship with the Father and the brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're also in the holy temple of God. That is uh, quite a thought as we look at these pictures. And we're joining the people of the Old Testament. When you think of Noah, the uh, patriarchs, uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, Joseph, uh, on through... um, I think Moses, and of course you can think of King David, uh, about all the great prophets, Isaiah, and so many of all those Old Testament saints, and then Matthew and Mark and John, as uh, we can think of all the other apostles, and then of course Paul, and then we can think of Luke and Philemon, and on and on and on, all the way through those characters that are in Scripture, and then also the uh, early church fathers and people like Augustine, and then later Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and uh, Bunyan and Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, John Owen, and on and on all the way up to present time. And we are being put into that same building as those particular living stones. And he's still adding today. And uh, this temple is incredible. And so that's what we have looked at in this last section. As he has said, we are no longer outside, but we're inside. We're in the very kingdom, we're in the very household, and we are in the very temple. What a picture or pictures that Paul has drawn up for us to realize what an intimate place that we have been put. And that sets it up now for the next chapter, which is dealing with the mystery. The mystery has been unveiled. It's been uncovered. It's been revealed. And uh, what um, a great privilege that we have as um, part of the church, the Church of Christ. Thank you for coming out this evening, listening, and um, we say thank you. We say thank you, Lord, for being such a great God and putting us into this great temple. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.